Just love the, the heart of worship here. So here we go. Today, I am back after taking a break. Hope you guys enjoyed all the different guest speakers that we had. And they do a great job of just hearing different voices and stuff. Love that each summer that we get to hear other voices. And uh, man, I've, uh, I, this, this, this phrase right here uh, came to me by having a conversation with another pastor friend. And I was like, I'm going to borrow that because I think that's where many of us are. What to do when you do not know what to do is a new series that we are kicking off today. How many have you ever felt like that, right? How many of you have found yourself in a situation that you're just like, I don't know what to do? Maybe you have a big decision ahead of you. Maybe you have an amazing opportunity ahead of you. Right? Whatever it might be, and you're like, man, I don't know what to do with this. I, I, I don't know how to make the right decision. And it could be good things. It could be challenging things. Maybe you, maybe you have a wayward child, a child that's walked away from faith, and, call, and you're like, I don't know what to do. Maybe, maybe you don't know how to fix your marriage, and you're going, I, what to do when I don't know what to do because I've tried everything in my strength and it's just not going. How, how to, what, what if you're facing a, a major crisis, either personally or as a nation or as a world, as we're talking about right now, right? Maybe some of you have faced uh, in these last few weeks, you're like, what are we doing for school? Are we doing hybrid? Are we doing in person? Are we doing online? And you thought that you were going to get to choose what to do, but at the end, you didn't even get to choose. They chose for you, right? Or no, but you were still deciding, like, man, what do I do when I don't know what to do? What do I do when I don't know the best, the best thing to do? And, you know, all kind of things. What, what do you do when it comes to church? Should I watch in line? Should I be part of a small group? Should I come to the building? What do I do in these situations? And, and sometimes it may, you may be in that answering that question, because of something stupid you did. And you did something stupid to get yourself in a situation that causes you to go, what do I do when I don't know what to do? And you don't know how to get out of the mess that you put yourself in in the first place. So I was uh, thinking about that when I was in youth group, teenage years in high school. Every single year, our youth group would take a, a week-long re weekend retreat to this place because I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, called Mentone, Alabama. And we would have this great, uh, great time of services and, and camp kind of fun stuff during the day. And two of my good friends that were part of the youth group there were, were really good uh, rock climbers. Actually, they, were, they won the championship for the Southeast. And so they had all kind of rappelling gear and all the, all the, all the harness and everything like this that, that you needed for, for climbing. And I don't know if we had permission to do this or not, but um, somehow we got, in this, we got in this boat and we, we canoed way down this river that's right beside the camp. There's that. We, we canoed about a mile down. And at the, after you came to this, there was this big drop off, the, actually a big waterfall at the end of this thing, like quite high in a, in a cliff. So we parked the boats on the side, got out with the gear. And there's about two boats of us full. And there were some guys there and there's some girls there and these guys that knew what they were doing. And the idea was we were on this 150-foot cliff down. And we were going to tie off a rope. We were going to rappel down so far and then drop into the water, right? Sounds like a fun time, right? And so, but the thing is, you start at the top. We just tied off the rope, and we tied off the rope, and, it, and it's hanging down. And we guesstimated how long it is and how far it is. But how many of you know that when you look straight down that far, you, you kind of don't know how far that rope actually is from the water. And so these guys, I trusted them with their knots and how to tie knots and how to put the harness on and all this stuff. And they said, well, who wants to go first? Well, there was girls there. So you had to impress the girls. So I was like, I'll go first, right? And so I go first. And as I'm rappelling down that, everybody guys know when you start rappelling down that rope, when you start going at first, you know, you're going for a while, going for a while. And then all of a sudden I come and I've got like a foot or two left of rope. And I still got like 50 feet to the water. 
And <laughs> I was hanging there for a bit, and I'm yelling up at my friends like, hey, guys, <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't ready for this. And so because of whatever reason of trusting my friends, I, I got into a, a situation of not knowing what to do, right, in that situation. But I, we're going to talk about that for the next few weeks of what to do when you don't want to know what to do. And if you turn with me, we're going to go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And over these next few weeks, we're going to look at, uh, at some Old Testament stories over these next few weeks. A lot of them surrounding around the kings of Israel. You read them in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and we see that these the, the, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, that He chooses to display who He is to the nation around them, and we, we come to see about what they, how they set up having kings, and what these kings do in certain moments when they didn't know what to do. And we're going to see some, there, man, as you read through the Old Testament, man, there's some incredible, amazing stories that you read about. And, and there's some of these kings that we're going to look at, or as you look at through, through your Bible time reading, hopefully you're led to maybe during the season to, to read through some of those, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles there. And there is 50, I'm sorry, 42 kings that led, over, it led Israel for over a 500-year period. And their stories are rich. And some of these kings that you'll read about and you'll meet as you read these stories in the book of the Bible, they are godly men that led the nation. And they do a great job of submitting to the ultimate king, Yahweh, God of Israel, the one that led the nation in, uh, out of Egypt into their promised land. And, and some of these kings do a great job of, of leading the nation towards repentance and confession and tearing down idols. And they're amazing men of God. The problem is that there was just very few of those. The, the, the more of the stories of many of the kings of Israel's history were ungodly men. In fact, they were evil men. As you read these stories, we see some examples of these men that say, man, do not do this. When they fell into temptation, when they didn't know what to do, they leaned on their own strength. They leaned on their own pride and stuff. And when we can look at those selfish examples and sinful examples, and then we can see others that did a great job of turning the nation around and bringing them back towards repentance. And they're amazing stories to see, and we can see the, the decisions they made, and we can apply those to our lives. But I think it's so important when we read the Old Testament stories, especially like these stories in, in the kings, about the kings of Israel, it's so often in our American Western mindset, we want to go, okay, what's the moral of the story? Like, okay, we want to we take these moral maximums. We want to take these moral codes and like, okay, take this guy's points, and he lived like this, so let's live like this guy, and he did these good things, and oh, here was a person that led them in bad ways and made bad decisions, so we want to just apply it of like, don't do that, don't fall into temptation in that way, and that is great. We're going to do that. We're going to see actions that these kings did, but that is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, the ultimate reason why we have this Old Testament scripture is not that we just have these morals of the story to follow and all this stuff. No, it is to reveal. It is showing. If we stop there, we sell ourselves short because we've got the New Testament also to apply to this, right? And, and it's really, it's, it's not the actual thing. We set it short of that. The whole purpose of this, of this stories of involving these sinful kings and these, these kings that uh, allowed idolatry and injustice, it shows us and it points that there's this moral decline amongst even God's people. 
And over time, it sh- these stories show us that, my goodness, we need another king. We need a better king. We are looking forward to, they are looking forward. They planted the seed that we need the ultimate king, the son of David, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, to come and sit on the throne and rule the lives, right? Because the, the, we meet this God, of, we also meet through, this, through these books, we meet this God of promise, the promise of salvation, that he orchestrates his amazing plan of redemption for the world through the royal line that ultimately uh, comes through David's lineage, and that is Jesus Christ comes. And so the journey through these king's stories and of Israel points us to an eternal king, the owner of an internal kingdom to which we have as believers an opportunity to submit to willingly and by our choice to live for that king and under his kingship and for his eternal kingdom. We have that because like, when we see these kings in the Old Testament, we see the, the, the leaders even in our nation and around the world today, we see that leaders come short every single time. They don't lead in justice. They don't lead in the ways that are holy and upright and pleasing to God. And it causes this thing inside of us to long for the second coming of our Christ Jesus to come and rule and reign once and for all with justice and healing and making this world the place that it was intended to be. So let us see that as we read through these stories, that it births a longing in our hearts for the one true king to sit on his throne. So where do we begin? How do, how do we start this? Like, we're not going to be able to jump into all these six different books of the Old Testament and over, cover over 500 years uh, period. So where, where do we start this journey? Well, I think that a good place to start would be the beginning. <laughs> how about that, right? We should probably start there. Uh, and so, as I said, 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to see uh, how this, this nation came about choosing their first king that would lead, lead Israel. There are 42 kings for 500 years that would lead. And so we see this in Samuel chapter 8. Here's how the story goes, and here's how they got into, essentially, we're going to see this mess, okay? Verse 1, as Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. So real fast, back up in case you forgot your Sunday school lessons, in case you missed that day, is that Samuel is this incredible example of godly character in the Old Testament. He's the little boy that was dedicated in the temple and, and, and put in the service of the temple at like three, four years old, growing up in the temple by leading the nation, becomes one of the last judges in the book of Judges of judging the nation of Israel and helping dealing with their, with their, their leadership and bringing them forward. He was the guy that led them well and he ministered in the temple alongside the priest when he was young and so this guy if you look at his life decade upon decade upon decade he led well he was a godly man and he and as he led the nation of Israel now I'm not saying that he was a perfect man he was sinful man that needed the savior that needed forgiveness that needed uh, to repent to God also but he was godly and as godly as Samuel was now he's old and the area that he probably messed up or didn't maybe miss the mark or whatever that might be is that he was not able to portray and model and transfer that godliness to his sons. Um, that's one area where of Samuel's life that he could be accused of or, or kind of questioned about. And, and he's leading this nation of Israel well, but 
Apparently, he didn't lead his family very well because the next verse picks it up in chapter 2. It says, Joel and Abijah, his oldest son, held court in Beersheba, but they were not like their father. They were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. They abused the power that they had received because of who their dad was, because of who their father was. They didn't love the Lord and, 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 and with all of their heart. And when their dad was about to die, about to be gone, they would be in charge and they would be, they would be able to rule and reign and be an ultimate role in Israel, judge without anyone kind of overseeing them. Now, I wanted to speak to that for a minute. Now, again, we know that each and every child comes to a point where they have to choose for themselves if they will submit to Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have, to, they have to come to that point of making that choice for their own lives in which direction they will go. But the way that we lead our families, parents, parents in this room of children, adult children, wherever that is, the way that we lead our kids, if you claim to be a Christian, a Christ follower, 24-7, you are a model, an example of your, to your children of what a Christian is. I am not saying that you have to be perfect. I'm not saying that you don't ever mess up. I'm saying that even in your imperfection and when you mess up, you own it, you apologize, you ask for forgiveness. You model that to them when we come up short. You show that. See, see, man, with all of the opportunities in our world today, in our, in our community, so many opportunities that we want to give our children, so many experiences that we want to give our kids. We want to give them the, the, the best childhood, the best upper hand to be able to, to do these things. And as, as you're looking to how to pour into your children, how to set them up for success. Do not forget your number one goal. Do not forget your number one goal. Your number one goal is not for your kid to be on the honor roll. Your number one goal is not for your kid to go to college. Your number one goal is not for them to make the team. Your number one goal is not for them to get an academic or an athletic scholarship into college. That is not your number one goal. Your number one goal for your children is to get them to heaven. All right? All those other things are good and great, but your number one goal and the enemy will distract you with everything else to focus on everything else but that. Because I'm going to tell you that every temptation in this world that your children will face and every demon in hell is going to try to prevent them from getting to heaven. So you need to fill them with the truth, show them the truth so they know the way to go. Amen? Whew. All right. Don't measure success by temporary achievements. Success is measured by eternal purposes. So we see, chapter, verse 4 and 5 says, Finally all the elders came, of Israel came to Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So they come to him like, hey, Samuel, like, listen, like, your, your, your sons are ungodly. Your sons are, are not like you. They're, we don't want them ruling over us. We love you. We love how you have led us, Samuel, but your kids are not like you. Your sons, we don't want that. Instead, would you find us a godly king who can rule over us and continue in the ways that you have already done? That's their ask. That's the, that's the request of Samuel. And on the surface, you look at it, and it looks like, wow, that someone, that we want someone like you. 
We, we want someone that's godly. We want someone to, to lead Israel in a godly way. We want someone that loves Yeshua, the God of Israel, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of Israel. We want someone like that. But however, if you look at the end of the verse, you kind of see the motives of their request. It says, give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Like all the other nations have. See, Israel at this time is in their promised land, and they're there, and they're looking around, and they're going, they're realizing, hey, we're the oddball out. Like all these, other, all these other nations around us, they actually have a physical king that sits on a throne. They look at Philistines that come up and fight against them. Look at Ammon and, and Moab that comes up against them. And these countries, they look around, these nations around them, and they have a king that looks the part, that plays the part, that fights the battles, that leads the battles. That, that, and they look around them and they're like, we want what they have. We want to look like them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar, right? Too often when we don't know what to do, when we don't know what to do, our first tendency is to look around and go, well, what is everybody else doing? When we don't know what to do, we go, what is everyone else doing? What is everyone else spending their time doing? What is everybody else spending their money doing? What, what, what is everybody else having their kids involved in and what clubs and what sports and what is needed? What is everybody else doing? What is everybody else wearing on the first day of school? What is everybody else uh, doing for school this year? What, are they going in person? Are they going online? What is the right call? Or do they have to wear masks and not masks and all the, all the things? What is everybody else doing? And even into church that can fall. We as a church can look around and go, what is everybody else doing? Don't be the first church to open up. You'll get slam bastard and all kind of stuff what is everybody let's let everybody else let somebody else lead the way let's let somebody else lead lead this thing let's let somebody else what is the best principles and best policies for 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 directing a church and so often our instead of going to god our first thing is to look around at everyone else but unfortunately for israel god never called them nation of israel to be like the people around them he called them to be the opposite of the people around him. Remember when he's taking them out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. We read this in Exodus 9, 19, verse 5 and 6. Is he's telling them who they are, that they're this chosen people. He says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. God is saying to the nation of Israel, listen, you are my, spe right there, my special treasure, my special possession. I'm entering into a covenant relationship with you. You are my people. And Israel, you are to look different. You are to look different because you have a unique relationship with the creator of the universe, Yahweh, the God of all gods, the one that is above it all. And if you walk with me and you trust me and you obey me, even though you cannot see me, even though I do not sit on a throne, I am very much here leading you, caring for you, protecting you, providing for you. But you've got to lean into me. And in times of distress and when things get hard and you've got, and, and you've got, you've got to trust God to meet each one of your needs, you're going to look distinct. But Israel, that's your job. 
It's to look different. It's to look different. And he actually says to the nation of Israel that you, I'm using you to introduce myself to all the nations. How you look and how you shine and how you walk this out. I want the entire world to know who I am. So that's Israel. That's your role. You are to look different. And now that place for us as believers in Jesus Christ, if we have called on him as our Savior, we are to be different. Paul calls us aliens and foreigners in this world. We are not to look like everyone else. You are a city on a hill. You are a lamp in, on, on a table that is bringing light to the whole room. Yes. You know, but we are to act and look different. Yes. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with that? But too often, many Christians, we fall for the same thing as the nation of Israel. Oh, looking different, that'll make us weird. That'll make us strange. We don't, we don't want that. We don't want to look different and weird and strange compared to everybody else. Can't we just blend into current culture? I mean, how are we going to reach the culture if we don't look like the culture? Have you heard those lies, right? Like, how, how do we do that? No. We're to look different. We're meant to reach this world by, 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 by carrying his very presence, by putting his kingdom first, his ways first, by being obedient to him, by having our allegiance to God and our allegiance to God first, our allegiance to God before our allegiance to our nation, our allegiance to God and Jesus Christ on the throne, above our allegiance to our, our, our political party of our choice, our allegiance to him and our trust in him alone, that he was our provider, that he is our sustainer, and it's not someone that is elected into a government leadership that is going to be our provider, but he is. We have to remind, remind ourselves of whose kingdom are we in. The nation of Israel looks at all that God promises, looks at what it says in Exodus, and he's calling them like, yeah, but we don't want that. We don't want that. We want a king like the rest of the nations have. And I wonder how many times we miss what God wants to do in and through us because we are too busy trying to look like everyone else. Go down to verse 20. It's going to unpack that a little bit more of what their intent was. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. Again, it's building a little bit more. This is the heart of the matter. This is revealing what's under the surface. Why do they really want a king? Well, if you read a little bit before that, we come to find out that there's this enemy nation that's being led by this king named uh, Nahash of Ammon. And he's just on the other side of the Jordan River. Nahash, his name in Hebrew actually means snake. And he is a slimy snake of a guy. And he is literally on, on Israel's doorstep, just ready there to come and attack them. And they know he's coming. They've heard his threats. And they're watching. And they're watching this king with his army. And he's coming to fight in Israel. And they're going, look at their king. Look how he's leading them in the battle. And we don't even really have an army. And much less we don't have a king. And so they're looking, and they're watching this king come, and they're like, we need a king like the other nations to fight our battles for us. They want someone else to fight their battles other than God, other than Yahweh. Because fear, fear causes us to do things that are irrational and reckless. When we are overcome by fear of the things around us, when we just, when we fall victim and, and, and when we fall victims of fear and we focus, what do we do? We focus on what we don't have. 
We focus on what others have and what we don't have, and then it leads us to lean into man-made solutions. We look at how man can solve problems that only God can solve. And we start looking up and lifting up men and women. They'll take care of my problems instead of Yahweh, instead of God, instead of having trust there. And fear will cause us to do things that are irrational and reckless. Instead of trusting God to provide for them. Even in a situation that's tired and they need someone who's, they need to trust God. He does great things. Go back up to verse 6. It says, Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. This is God saying, do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are not, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. See, this breaks Samuel's heart because he knows who God is. He has trust in God. And God speaks and he weighs in on this. And he's saying, hey, does does Israel have a king? Yeah. Yahweh, the creator of the universe, is their king. And he says to Samuel, he says, Samuel, because I just imagine Samuel as a leader, just heartbroken over this. He says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting the judges. They're not rejecting the prophets that I've sent. When they make this request to have a king, they are rejecting me, their heavenly king. Can I pull back for a moment and just kind of share how much that verse has even ministered to me personally? See, as a pastor with a pastor's heart that loves people deeply and and I love to see people that are far from God come to know God and grow in their faith and grow in their relationship and their trust in God. And then, unfortunately, as much as you get to see a life, a a front seat of, of life change for the good, you also, as a pastor, see the front, you get a front seat view of someone making wrong choices and going the wrong way, walking away from relationship and walking away from me being their pastor or being part of this church community. And there's moments as a leader, I can imagine Samuel's heart there of what did I do wrong? Did I not lead well? And what, I should have done more. I should have equipped them more and should have done this and all this. And God just said, and, and I can understand Samuel's heart there of that heartbreak. But I can't even imagine the heartbreak of a heavenly father who loves these people, who wants to be their king, and the heartbreak that he feels for them when they walk away and they choose another way than his. How broken our father God's heart is when those that walk away from him and they're not rejecting, when when we think they're rejecting the church and they're actually rejecting him. But like the prodigal son's father that we read about in the New Testament, and like we see throughout the Bible, when people choose their ways over God's way, God lets them have what they think they want. So amazing he does that. Let's them do what they want. Says so this it says, says, by the way, the way that they're acting is how they always acted. So this is this is the course for them. It says, ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. Now they are giving you the same treatment, Samuel. You're getting to see this. He's saying, Samuel, this is the pattern. I'm telling you, this is who these people are. When push comes to shove, when, when, when they really have needs before them that, that, that rise up, they have a tendency to be fickle. They won't trust me. Instead of trusting the ultimate king, 
to solve their problems, to fight their battles for them, to work through these issues. Instead of that, they pursue these lesser things, things that they believe will bring them safety and comfort and satisfaction and success, whatever the issue might be. God says, Samuel, this is their tendency. And yet, like a good parent, he says, okay, you have a king. If you don't want me as king, that's okay. I'm going to let you go down that road. If you want a man to sit on that throne instead of God sit on that throne, I'm going to let you do that. That's why he says in verse 9, do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. He warns them. Like a good parent, you know, you, 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 you argue, you try to tell them what you think, what you think is good, and what you think is right, but sometimes they think that they know better, right? It's almost every summer, we try to bring the family down to Chicago, and uh, we, we've learned the trick of bringing scooters for the kids to ride scooters because they can walk around. Uh, we, they, we can go a lot further when we're riding scooters around Chicago, seeing all the sights. You can get a lot more ground covered that way. And so a few years ago, we were riding along, and uh, there's this one spot right outside of Millennial Park where it goes Quite a bit, of, quite a bit of a hill, a bit of a steep thing there going on. And uh, we all live in Illinois. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, where I know what a hill is and know how to go down a hill. And if you live in Illinois, you're not really very familiar with hills, right? And so uh, this time we're, we're going there, and my youngest son, Jude, who has his headphones on, thank goodness, um, right now, he was <laughs> it's going down this hill. And I was like, Jude, slow down. It's a big hill. It's a big hill. You got to slow down. You got to slow down. I, you got to be careful. You got to be careful. He was extremely confident in that moment of his scootering abilities and goes zoom in down this hill. And I, and, and I said, Jude, slow down. And he actually looked back and gave me a look like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I got this. And then the speed wobble. How many of you have ever felt the speed wobble before? That is the most terrifying thing in the world is the speed wobble is when you're going and then all of a sudden, if you're on a skateboarder or a scooter and that wobble starts going and just busted really bad. And Nancy was compassionate. I was angry. I was like, why didn't you listen to me? But the thing is, some of us are stubborn like that. We have to, we're, we're, we know, you, okay, you can find out the stove is hot by me telling you it's hot, or you might just be a stubborn person that needs to put your hand on the stove to really believe that it's hot. And some of us can be so thick-headed, but just like God and like a parent, we keep on warning them, we keep on telling them, and we hope that one day they will be wise enough and go, you know what, my dad's been right a few times in the past. And maybe I'll listen as I get into my teenage years or my young adult years, right? And God is the same way. <laughs> <laughs> he tells the nation of Israel, he's like, hey, you have a king, but if you, don't want, if you want an earthly king, trust me, this is what they'll be like. So he warns them. He warns them. Now listen to this, 11 through 18. Stick with me as I read this. It's 11 through 18. He warns them of what a king is going to, gives them the full description of this is what a king is like. So, Amiel, so Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. Some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you by force and force them to cook and bake and perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. 
He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkey for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks. He will, you, he will, be, you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. Straight up die there. There's what the king's going to do. This is, this is the offer you guys. This is what you guys want. And even after Samuel warns them thoroughly about what this is going to do, they say, this is what we want. This is what we want. And they end that with chapter 8. If they still demand a king. And for 50, 500 years, Israel's going to find light about what it's like to have men ruling over them, kings ruling over them. Now in between... Chapters 8 and chapters 12, we, we, we meet some other people that come into the story here. But if you go over to chapter 12 with me, Samuel's speaking to them again about this, this, this king that they're raising up. It says now, but when you were afraid of Nahash, the king of Ammon, you came to me and said that you wanted a king to reign over you, even though the Lord your God was already your king. All right, here is the king you have chosen. You asked for him, and the Lord has granted your request. How many Bible trivia people in the room? Who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul. Guess what his name means in Hebrew? Asked for. Asked for. This is the king that you asked for. You wanted it. You wanted it. You wanted this. So this is what you're going to get so where did this guy Saul guy come from anyway? You know, like who is this guy? I mean, he's kind of just this random guy that shows up in the next, there, chapter 9, chapter 10, we hear about him. He's kind of like doesn't play this, this doesn't play a significant part in this grand narrative of, of a lineage and all this stuff. But they had a desire for a king. And there's two reasons why they choose this guy to be the king, the first king over Israel. And so we, we see this in Samuel, in first, uh, first Samuel chapter 9. We get a physical description of Saul. It says this, if it's not on the verse, not on the screen. It says, Kesh is, Kesh, is Saul, uh, Kesh is Saul's dad, has a son named, his name's Saul. And he is a very handsome man. It says that there was no one more handsome among the people. That he stood a head, stood shoulders above the rest of the men. So he's taller than the other people. He's good looking. When he looks, when he walks in the room, all the single ladies go, is he single? If he walks in the room and he is married, you go, does he have a brother? Right? This is who this guy is. He gets your attention when he walks in the room. When you shake his hand, you remember it. You remember your interaction with this guy. And not only is he good looking and tall, that this, this family, even though they're the the, the, the smallest tribe of the nation of Israel, that they are known for something. They're known for people in battle. And Judges, it talks about this family, this tribe that were, it says that this is description of like they were left-handed and could sling a stone at a hick, excuse me, at a hair and not miss. So Saul's lineage is these people that can sling a stone and at a hair and not miss, and they're left-handed. And, and commentaries would say when it says that it's, they're left-handed, it's not really like they're, they're all left-handed. It's that they're pretty much ambidextrous. They can use both hands. They're like the guy in uh, Princess Bride. You know, oh, you cut off this hand. I still got another hand to go with, right? You take off one hand, I'm going to still fight you. I'm not going down with one shot. 
So this, 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 they describe this guy. He's a great in battle. I mean, he's like, he's the, he's the poster boy king. He's the guy that's on the front cover of all the romance t- uh, novels, right? I mean, this is the king that Israel wanted. And so God gives this warning through Samuel for them. He says, now, because even if they chose their way, now, now he's going to, this was not his plan. This is plan B, but God's like, okay, I'll work with your plan B. Here's your plan B. Now, if you fear and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, and if you do not rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as your God. Saying, hey, I, you, want, you want this king here, but I, I, I'm going to let that happen. I'm going to let this go this way, but don't, don't forget, let him recognize that he's a lesser king, that he's under my kingship, that he's under my rule. And God says, if he can do that, if he can steward the nation of Israel and he can lead them well and shepherd them well, God's like, I can make this work. But they need to worship me alone and not these other idols that they continue to go towards and honor the covenant that I've started with the nation of Israel. We can make this work. But verse 15 says, But if you rebel against the Lord's command and refuse to listen to him, then his hand will be as heavy upon you as it was upon your ancestors. So if this guy submits to me, if this guy, if this guy submits to me, great. If he rebels against God, if he pushes back, if he gets too big for his britches, as they say down in the south where I grew up, right? Like if he gets power hungry, if he loses his sight of what it means to be a leader, what it means to, to rule over Israel, my hand is going to be against him. But if he walks with me, we can make this work. Now, if you, if you recall the story, we don't have time to jump into all of it, is that Saul starts really well. He does really well. He, he leads, the, he, gets, he gets this, this, this army together, and they go and fight this, this king of Ammon. And, they, and like everybody's like, man, do we even have a chance? And, man, they defeated them because God was with them. And they come back, and they're singing his praises and, and all of this. And everybody's going, man, this is incredible. We won a victory. See, we got our guy. We got our king. Isn't he so great? Man, look at God. We, we got this guy. And God's just like, let's see how it goes in the long game because Saul's going to rule and reign in Israel for 40 years and how many of you guys know that long-term consistency in the same direction is not common long-term long-term consistency in the same way over time with power and authority and wealth the heart gets revealed and the things inside of Saul start to come out. And over time, he might be an impressive man on the outside, but what's on the inside starts to show up, and he's shallow, and there's not really a hint of godliness in him. And he doesn't worship God, and he doesn't walk with God, and he doesn't shepherd the people, and he, and, he, and he abuses his power, and he blurs these lines between king and priest. And it comes to this point that God says through Samuel, says, that's it, Saul, you're done, you're fired, done with. God's like, I, I let you guys choose the first time who is going to be your king. God says, this time I'm picking. Number two king, Saul, you're done. You're out. I'm picking the next one. And I'm gonna, I would have established a great legacy through you, but I'm over that, and I'm bringing in a new guy. And this guy, when we read about it, is completely unimpressive. The Bible describes him as ruddy, redheaded, pale, freckled, Nothing of stature to look at. Wow. <laughs> Does say in another verse that he is handsome, so it's a little bit confusing, Bible. What are you saying? You know, and, and so he walks in the room. You don't really notice him too much. He's the youngest of Jesse's sons. 
And so they didn't even like bring him, when, when they were looking for the king, they didn't even bring him forth because they didn't think he had a chance. And this is King David. And King David overall did a, did a pretty amazing job of leading Israel because he never bowed his knee to idols. He always understood his role was underneath God, that God had given him that authority, that he was to steward God's kingdom, that he was to lead the nation of Israel under God's leadership. Now, by no means was David perfect. We know the stories of, like, towards the end of his life, he makes a big, big moral oops and then tries to cover it up with even a bigger oops. And we know also that he didn't lead his family very well. There's all kind of drama there. He was, he was a man that did mess up and did sin, but it says from the very beginning that he was a man after God's own heart, that when he did mess up, that when he did sin, he repented, he owned it, and he was honoring of God. He was acknowledging that there was the one true God. So why would we look at this point in Israel's history? Like what, what, what benefit does it do for us today? Because as the title says, what to do when you don't know what to do. As I said, so often we, we are just like them. We start to look around and see what others are doing, and we want to do what everybody else is doing. And we make decisions based out of fear. And we've really dug into this morning the motives of these people, why they were asking for a king. They were looking for a king, someone to stand up on the throne that they could look to, someone that would fight their battles for them. And what were their motives at times at the nation of Israel pursuing idols? As God mentioned already there in, in, in the, the, the narrative there, it says, they abandoned them many times and went for other things. They went and worshipped other idols. They abandoned the greatest thing for lesser things. And you look at that and you go, man, the, the answer is the same for us. We choose lesser things instead of the greater thing. These guys wanted a king and they went and worshipped idols because they thought it would give them what they wanted. I know that might seem a little foreign to us because we don't have a, a king for say, you know, and we're not, we're not looking for someone like a king like that, and we don't, I don't think a lot of us are going to be tempted to go home and get an idol, a ball out, and worship him this afternoon. That's not, that's not too much of what many of us are facing, but it would say that there is things that we chase after, that we think it's going to be the easier solution to our current situation. We say on Sunday morning, okay, God, you're right. I love you. I trust you. I can sing songs about you that I'm thankful to you. I'm thankful for all you've done. But Monday morning comes, and I got to pay bills, and I got school debt to pay off, and I got boyfriend issues, and I got kid issues, and I got marriage issues, and I got life stuff. And God, I can't, I, I, I don't know if you can really figure all this out. God, I don't know if you can actually solve this problem that I'm facing. And God, if, you, if I do even trust that you can do it, I'm not trusting that you got my best intentions in mind. Can we be honest? Do we really believe that God has our best intentions in mind? And God, I'm, I don't know if I'm happy pursuing you and you alone because these other things just want to satisfy me. Bring me more security. Bring me more success, more popularity. These things, like, I'm not going to bow down and worship other gods, but I'm sure I'm going to chase after and worship and do all I can to, to worship comfort, security, safety. And if we're honest, the story's too true in our lives. We say, Lord, you're good and I trust you. But when it comes to my finances, when it comes to my kids, when it comes to areas that I've got to take control, 
When it comes to, I've been trusting you for a while, but God, now I'm at the end of my rope. Just like I was that teenager hanging on the end of that rope, and I'm there on that rope, and I'm going, okay, what do I do here? What do I do when I don't know what to do? And I can, I can go, hey, can you guys feed more rope down? And they're going, no, that's not possible, right? You know, I can try on my own strength to try to climb back up that rope. I'm not that strong. All I know is I'm going to get in more trouble because I'm going to be higher off the water, and I'm going to be exhausted, and I'm going to have a bigger fall. I could ask those guys to try to pull the rope up, but that's looking to another man to do it and the man to help me. And I just, uh, there was no choice left. I got myself into this stupid mess and I said a prayer and I said, God, help me. And I just let go of the rope and fell that next 50 feet and I did not do a toothpick as you're supposed to do somehow in fear. I got the worst spanking that I've ever gotten in my life. (laughs) Aching and hurting, I climbed out of that water and my friends lowered the rope another 20, 30 feet after I went down. So so what do we do when we don't know what to do? What do we do when we're at the end of our rope? We keep our eyes on the one true king. We keep on doing the last thing that God told us to do, right? The last thing he told us to do in scripture and last thing he spoke to our heart. He told me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So I'm going to keep on doing that. Even my marriage is tough. He told me, I mean, I'm having a hard time with my kids. He told me to raise my kids in the ways of the Lord, right? He told me to do that. He told us to, if I, if I love him, I will obey his commands. He told me to trust in the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, strength, and might. And I, beyond my understanding, he told me to do that, that I need to trust him even, and I need to keep my eyes on him and stop trying to place other kings there. The last thing he told you to do, the last thing he told you to do, there's times, there's seasons in 2020 where I'm like, God, can you give me a new assignment? Can I be honest? <laughs> can, I give you, can you give me a new assignment, God? And it's that answer, what's the last thing I told you to do? Be faithful to what he's told you to do in your heart, and he's the one that changes your assignment. You do not change your assignment. We come short. We make mistakes. One last verse as we close this. Samuel reminds them that they made a mistake, and he tells them, you guys chose a king when God told you not to. He warned you, and this, all, this thunder and this rain comes, and they're all freaked out and scared because it's, like, it's not a time that a thunderstorm comes and rain comes like this, and they knew it was God. Samuel says, don't be afraid. Samuel assured them. You have certainly done wrong. Not making, not making light of what you've done. You made some wrong choices. But make sure now that you worship the Lord with all of your heart and don't turn your back on him. Don't go back to worshiping worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They are totally useless. The Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name. That's that's another sermon right there. He, for he is pleased, for, the, for he has pleased the Lord to make his, you his very own people. Love that. We've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. Certainly you have done wrong. But now that you have done wrong, you've seen the wrong that you've done, you've come into a new fear and understanding of who God is, don't go back to doing that anymore. Don't go back. Don't have a trust in God. Don't turn your back on him again. Don't turn to worthless things that cannot rescue, cannot help you. Because God will not abandon you for his name. And he has his name upon your heart. And he loves you.
sealed you with the promise of Jesus Christ if you believe in him as your Lord and Savior. If you trust in him, did you know in, that when he becomes inside of you that you are a carrier of his name? And if you're a carrier of his name, it says for his, for his greatness of his name, he will not abandon you. He will not dishonor his own name. We have the choice to keep on walking there. Even when we messed up, even when we fall short, that we got to keep our eyes on the bullseye. Just as I said at the beginning of the series, our, our, eye, our eye is not on these kings. Our eye, our bullseye is that though this earth we will be let down by kings that have come in Israel, leaders, presidents, pastors, all of that, that we continually look forward to our eternal King Jesus ruling and reigning in our lives today and ruling and reigning forever in eternity. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you right now, God, for your presence in this room, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for giving us these stories of old and helping us see, Lord, that when we choose things that just look good on the outside, Lord, we just as, nation, as the nation of Israel chose a good-looking, good-fighting king, Lord, we are attracted in our flesh to things that just attract us on the surface level. But Lord, I ask that you would reveal the heart and each the, the heart motive behind each one of us when we are chasing after things of comfort, security, looks, like just, just things that, that make us look better and feel better, about our um, just being led by our emotions. God, reveal those things to us. We want to be your people. We don't want to be duped. We don't want to be fooled. We want to keep you in your rightful place on the throne, Jesus. God, as we navigate this world with so many distractions and so many things that want us to put all of our attention and focus on, Lord, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit for each believer in this room to keep their eyes on you. Now, Lord, I want to pray for those in this room or those that are online listening and they have not placed you on the, on the throne of their heart, Lord. They have been, they know in their, in their heart, Lord, that they have chased after other things to bring them satisfaction. They have chased after other things to try to bring them peace. They have chased after other things to bring them success, to bring them money, to bring them wealth, to bring them popularity and fame. They've chased after all these other things and God, they know that they have left them empty. Now, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would minister to each and every heart. And Jesus wants to come and be the king of your heart. He wants to rule and reign over your life. And if that's you, we'd love, if you're online, there's a thing that says, I accept Jesus, and we'd love to connect with you. If you're in this room and you want to pray that prayer with me, I'd love for you to slip your hand up and say, God, I, I have not made you the king of my life. I've chased after other things. So, Lord Jesus, see those hands. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, Lord, I pray for those in this room right now, Lord, that have chased after other things. Lord, I ask that those that are returning home and those that are making you their king for the first time, that they would come back to you today. Lord, I thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace, for your mercy in all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen.